Welcome to this first podcast in the University of New South Wales Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty. And today our topic is the International Criminal Court. My name is Rob McLaughlin and I will be your host for this episode. At the outset of this series, we would of course like to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. We acknowledge their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Similarly, as our stepping off point today, we would just also like to note why we are doing this. We're doing this because in such tumultuous and unpredictable times, we believe that the humanities and social sciences have something to offer in shedding light on our many current challenges and assisting us in charting ways forward. History, as it's often been said, does not repeat, but it certainly rhymes. Now, our topic today is the International Criminal Court, which became a functional reality about 17 years ago when it swore in its first prosecutor. Since then, the ICC has spent over 1.5 billion euros and convicted only four people of international crimes. So whilst the ICC is now a functional reality, the question we will ask today is whether it's also a functioning reality. Now, to help us understand the ICC and whether it's broken and whether indeed it can be fixed, we're joined today by Doug, Doug, Douglas Guilfoyle. Douglas is an Associate Professor of International Security Law at UNSW Canberra, and I've known Doug for many years. So, Doug, before we start, tell us a bit about your pathway into the position of you know, internationally acknowledged and renowned expert on the ICC. How does one become such a thing? <laughs> well, in my case, by accident. Um, so... You and I, Rob, first met uh, many years ago discussing um, maritime interception on the high seas. So my first home is really law of the sea. And I fell sideways into international criminal law uh, through an interest in piracy and some unwise words spoken uh, in the course of a job interview at University College London early in my career where they needed someone to teach international criminal law. So I came to it sideways and as a teaching subject originally, and uh, a lot of my publications in international law, I've had some international criminal law. I've, I've written a bit on theories of uh, criminal responsibility, but a lot of what I've written has been more on the teaching-focused side. And over the years, kind of updating those materials and preparing the textbook, I just became progressively less and less happy with how the International Criminal Court was performing as a project for a number of the reasons we'll, we'll discuss today. But, you know, the headline figures aren't impressive. And I just came to this moment where I sort of asked myself, well, what's going on here? Uh, and uh, indeed, the, the UK delegation, um, I believe it was at the end of 2019, came out, sorry, at the end of 2018 at the Assembly of State Parties of the International Criminal Court, the big meeting of all the state parties that happens annually, came out and said, we, we can't keep sticking our head in the sand. Something here is wrong. And then that was followed up not that long later by a statement from the first four presidents of the Assembly of State Parties saying that, you know, the International Criminal Court needs fixing, was kind of the headline of their op-ed. And so I started writing a few pieces for the blog of the European Journal of International Law, asking myself what's going on and trying to review the issues. And I honestly thought those would be a kind of swan song to the international criminal law field for me, that this would be my kind of uh, <laughs> valedictory um, piece on the matter, that not many people would be interested in uh, hearing these kinds of criticisms. But um, 
it struck a nerve. And so I've, I wrote a series of pieces for the European Journal of International Law blog that have been pretty well received. And I've, I've now tidied them up into a, a major paper with the Melbourne Journal of International Law. So that's the path. But in a sense, my whole career is founded in international criminal law because the thing that turned me on to what I do now, international law, was the Jessup moot back in the mid-90s at the ANU where the, the problem that my uh, team participated in was based around uh, questions around the Genocide Convention. So in, uh, in a sense, while I've said I've fallen into it sideways and mostly as a teaching thing, it's kind of there in my, my DNA as a law student as well. Uh, indeed. Well, let's talk about the ICC. So we'll, we'll talk a bit about the future more towards the end of this podcast, but perhaps let's start today and work backwards and find out how we got to this point. Right. Now, it's a big year for the ICC this year. A new prosecutor to be elected, the third in the court's history. Six, I believe, new judges coming up in December or to be elected in December. Yep. What else has been going on? Um, Well, we've got all those elections coming up in December. That's certainly true. Um, And we've had the uh, first um, suspect from the long-running Sudan investigation surrender himself to the court, Mr. Uh, Ali Kusheb. Um, we've had uh, President Trump in the US uh, announcing a whole raft of sanctions against members of the court, or they're on the books. I'm not sure they've been activated. They'll only become active when individuals are listed, but certainly um, the idea that individual members of the court, particularly the prosecutor, could face economic sanctions and travel bans in the US has and, been and laid down. Has that in fact stopped the prosecutor from reporting to the Security Council as she's mandated to do periodically? Uh, so far as I'm aware, no, not yet, because you know there are special arrangements in place for travel to and from the UN. Uh, but certainly uh, if you held any property or bank accounts or investments in the United States and were on staff at the International Criminal Court, you'd be right to feel pretty nervous. <laughs> and tell us a bit about Kabuga, because that's a Pretty important unfolding situation, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So um, Felician Kabuga was one of the last outstanding suspects uh, for the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. He was uh, suspected of being a financier of the Rwandan genocide. So he was arrested in Paris in May. Uh, So that drew a lot of headlines. But he's not actually going to be going to the International Criminal Court, though he will be going to The Hague, which potentially creates a lot of confusion. Uh, So that's the seat of the so-called residual mechanism that's wrapping up the cases of the tribunal for uh, Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and he'll either be tried in The Hague or quite possibly um, back at the old seat of the uh, ICTR in Africa. Ah, all right. Well, that's a little snapshot of where we are right now in in, in 2020. What's the evidence that there's a problem with this. What's the evidence that the ICC is underperforming? Right. So, as I've said, um, Prince uh, Zaid Rad al-Hussein and three other past presidents of the Assembly of State Parties, kind of the legislative arm of the court. So, this is a, a group that meets periodically representatives of states to talk about the functioning of the court, right. etc. Because at the end of the day, the court is founded in a treaty. So it's yep. empowered by the consent of its member states. So the court essentially has um, three arms. You know, the, the court, as we would normally understand 
a court, uh, which is headed by um, a committee of judges called the Presidency. So you'll hear references to the President of the Court, and that's, as it were, the Chief Justice of the Court. You've got the Office of the Prosecutor and the Registry, but beside those three principal arms, you've also got the Assembly of State Parties that uh, makes um, the Court's procedural rules and passes the budget each year. So it's, uh, in theory, it's kind of the, as it were, the legislative or political oversight arm of the court, but it hasn't been until recently particularly active perhaps in that role. So you have these first four presidents of that Assembly of State Parties come out and say, the court needs fixing. And the, the particular sort of quote from that that I, uh, I think is worth reading out is where they talk about the court needing to clarify the legal standards it applies to its criminal proceedings, work on the basis of clear prosecutorial strategies and policies, end its endless internal squabbles and address its management issues head on, which is pretty much a a sort of serve for every bit of the court. Now, these people were all diplomats in one part of their life. That's fairly undiplomatic language in many respects. What? Why would they go ahead and issue this sort of statement? Well, I think there'd been a grave reluctance to criticise the court for a long time, but dissatisfaction reached a kind of tipping point where, as it were, you go from saying, hearing very little, to suddenly hearing a lot all at once. And as you've said, it's had only four convictions in uh, four convictions for international crimes. It's had a handful of other convictions for obstruction of justice, uh, you know, witness tampering offences. And that's in 17 years since its first prosecutor was sworn in. But on top of that, if we just look at its sort of performance over that 17 years, it's commenced 37 cases. It's had four acquittals, eight other cases which were essentially thrown out at the pre-trial phase, not confirmed, or where charges were withdrawn by the prosecutor. Now, you compare that with the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia. Over 22 years, it indicted 161 individuals, 99 were sentenced, 19 were acquitted, and 13 were referred back to domestic courts. Like the, the disparity is huge. And if we look at the convictions, um, they're essentially all of various warlords from the Democratic Republic of Congo, other than uh, Mr. Al Mahdi, who pled guilty to the destruction of cultural property in Mali. Uh, then you've also had two major high-profile case collapses. So the charges against President Kenyatta of Kenya had to be withdrawn mid-trial in 2014, and the case against uh, President Gbagbo of Cote d'Ivoire was thrown out in 2019 mid-trial by the trial chamber itself, which, and this is breathtaking, held the evidence that the prosec- prosecutor had led over a number of years, essentially, was such that no reasonable court could convict. They didn't even let uh, defence counsel draw breath and commence a defence. They're just like, we've heard everything the prosecutor has to say and there is no basis on which a sound conviction could be made. Now, that's obviously under appeal, but it's, um, it's a pretty stunning indictment of the performance of uh, the Office of the Prosecutor. What about other situations, Douglas, where the prosecutor has recommended one thing perhaps and at the pre-trial chamber level it's been reversed and then it's gone on appeal effectively and been reversed again? We've had a bit of that, haven't we, in relation to, for example, Marvin Mamara, yeah. inquiry and such like? Sure. So there's definitely on um, – I, I would take the view there's been a pretty long-running uh, – power struggle within the court, um, and I mean that less in a political than a kind of technical sense, the court working out who is in charge. 
between the judges and the office of the prosecutor. Uh, and that tension's got a number of origins, but certainly if you if you look at a case like uh, the Marvi Mamara incident, so this was the episode in which um, there was an attempt uh, for a, by a humanitarian convoy to blockade run uh, the Israeli blockade of the Gaza Strip, one of the key vessels on which uh, a number of protesters were killed and a number of Israeli Defence Force um, soldiers were injured was the Mavi Mamara, and it was under the flag of Cormorus. And that's why the ICC potentially has any jurisdiction. It has jurisdiction over the territory of its member states, the nationals of its member states, and also the flag vessels of its member states. Now, um, you know, there's definitely arguable grounds there for a war crime. You know, excessive, uh, you know, excessive force against civilians, potentially uh, charges of willful killing, could arise in a scenario like that. Um, but the ICC is meant to be there for the gravest of international crimes. And the prosecutor took the not unreasonable view that appalling as eight civilian deaths were um, in those circumstances, that's not really on a scale with the atrocities happening in, for example, the DRC. And therefore, uh, it had as it were, the discretion to better direct its resources elsewhere. But there's been a series of to and fro on technical grounds where various pretrial chambers have said, no, we're going to order you to reconsider that. And the prosecutor has come back and said, well, we have reconsidered that and we still say no. And various chambers of the court have attempted to redirect the prosecutor. Now, you, we've also had cases uh, such as the ruling on jurisdiction in Bangladesh, Myanmar, where the a pre-trial chamber has also said to the prosecutor, yes, we confirm you've got jurisdiction to go and look at this case, but here are the, here are the kind of things you should be doing now to gather evidence. So there, there are a number of cases where there's some uh, pretty strong signals that some chambers of the court want to be directing the prosecutor. And certainly uh, coming the other way, the first prosecutor um, took the view that um, it was for him, for example, to decide uh, when it was appropriate to release material to the defence or the court if it had been received on conditions of confidentiality or if there were witness protection arrangements in place. And that uh, also um, displeased the court greatly and perhaps eroded a bit of trust on both sides because obviously in most judicial systems, if the court orders a prosecutor to do something, the prosecutor is expected to do it rather than have a kind of self-judging power to defy court orders. Well, before we turn to looking at the problems, Douglas, I'll just ask you about one more specific example, just to hang some meat on the bones, so to speak, of this, this challenge and this problem. And that is the case, I guess, that will be of some interest to even some of our listeners, and that's the Afghanistan issue. What's been the, the progress of that or the non-progress of that thus far? Right. So, I mean, that's, uh, that was highly controversial in that, obviously, there was a very long-running prosecutorial investigation into the uh, Afghanistan issue. Um, one of the complexities there is that uh, obviously Afghanistan has become a party to the statute of the International Criminal Court. So anything that occurs upon its territory is potentially within the ICC's remit. Therefore, um, the activities of uh, the US and particularly some of the CIA activities in moving people on alleged torture rendition flights through 
um, Afghanistan raises some jurisdictional issues. But one of the problems was once the prosecutor decided there was a reasonable basis for investigation against um, uh, a number of parties, including um, people uh, associated with uh, the US rendition program, went to a pretrial chamber and asked, in effect, for um, permission to commence formal proceedings. And that first court said, no, it wouldn't be in the interest of justice to do so. Um, this has taken too long. The situation on the ground is too uncertain. And essentially said that in the present political climate, uh, the prosecutor will not get the degree of uh, cooperation required in order to successfully mount cases. And that was seen as a pretty direct nod to US opposition. Now, the idea that you'd say, even sort of sotto voce, that you're not going to launch a proper investigation because the United States is unhappy and that you're going to bury that under the, the heading interests of justice was obviously pretty unpopular. And uh, that was reversed on appeal. Um, so there is now an ongoing investigation into um, Afghanistan, which has left uh, obviously, President Trump's administration um, fumingly unhappy. And we might come back to this issue of the US relations with the ICC because it's quite a, a love-hate relationship in many ways. I think <laughs> we might return to that at the uh, as we get into the future. Okay, so you've you've painted a you know a, a, let's be honest a, a relatively unhappy picture of the current state of affairs. So before we get into the problems, how, how is this court run? How is the ICC run? Who runs it? What are its what are its bits and pieces? Right. Well, I mean, as I as I've mentioned, you've got the kind of um, three principal arms. You've got the judicial arm with uh, eighteen judges elected on staggered six year terms. So every three years, six will come up for um, election, and sorry, nine year terms. Uh, so um, six are re elected every three years, uh, and they are a kind of um, self contained group. So they are in charge of policing um, their own standards and, as it were, judicial discipline, which has had some problems because they're all recruited from very different judicial cultures and backgrounds uh, and then have this limited period of service. So there's perhaps some problems around building up a kind of um, common body of understanding. And a really startling Open Society Justice Initiative report said that most judges arrive at the court with no knowledge of the Rome Statute no knowledge of its case law, no knowledge of its procedures, and spend the first three years of their appointment really just coming to grips with the institution, um, which is not a great look. No, indeed. Uh, then you've got the Office of the Prosecutor, which is um, very large by the standards of, say, national uh, prosecutorial departments, sort of nearly um, 200 sort of staff under the direction of a prosecutor and two deputies. Uh, and the prosecutor has a nine-year term, so gets a chance to put a big stamp on things. But uh, in the prosecutor's defence, you know, uh, their remit is sort of two-thirds of the world, and uh, the number of frontline investigators they've got is limited, and they have no uh, in-country police powers. They're entirely reliant on cooperation from member states to achieve anything on the ground, which... Uh, makes some of the criticisms around the fact that uh, the prosecutor, the prosecutor's office only ever seems to go after rebels and warlords as opposed to people in government a bit more comprehensible. It's going to be very difficult to go after people in government if the people you are relying on 
in order to get policing authority in country or investigatory authority are those same people. Mm. Uh, so that's um, perhaps, a, if anything, uh, a limitation of the court's design rather than the office of the prosecutor. Then you've got the registry, which has, which is the administrative arm, which sounds like it should be a fairly light body until you consider the enormous volume of translation work that has to support the court. And the court ha- gives a reasonably generous role to victims. And so hundreds of applications for recognised victim status in every case have to be processed. Uh, And the registry also sort of funds defence counsel and victims' representatives and the like. So it's an enormous task. But there are accusations that all of these arms of the court have become too bureaucratic and efforts to restructure the registry in particular ended in uh, literally millions of euros worth of litigation at the International Labour organisation and resulted, I think, in the end, in only 10 full-time permanent positions being reduced. So let's talk about the problems, Douglas, and um, perhaps tell us a little bit about some of those areas that were identified in the in the letter by the, uh, the, the previous uh, chairs of the, um, of the Assembly of State Party, parties, I'm sorry. Mm. Um, tell us a bit about what what headings are they using to say here's here's the buckets of problems we've got? Right. Well, I mean, if we go if we go back to that um, key quote, they talked about legal standards, they talked about clear prosecutorial strategies, and they talked about internal squabbling. So, if we think about um, legal standards, there have been uh, a lot of accusations that the judges have not settled clear rules about how they will approach, for example, the law of evidence. And to boil it right down, you've still got a kind of division in the court between uh, what are often called atomists and holists. So holists will say, well, let the prosecutor put in all their evidence. Some of it might be circumstantial. Some of it you might not give much weight, but we'll take everything in and then see what it adds up to. And you could say that, you know, in, in complex atrocity trials that span big blocks of history, that might seem appropriate. But the problem is it does encourage a prosecutor to just dump everything in and then go, well, if you take this and that and this slice of this thing and that bit out of context, then, you know, the pattern emerges. Uh, whereas the atomists will say, no, 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 the prosecutor needs to articulate a very precise chain of causation that ties the guy at the top to the exact crime on the ground. We need to understand each step in that story and you need to clearly relate compelling evidence to each step. Uh, And you've seen appeals chambers occasionally throw back um, decisions of uh, trial chambers saying, the way you're dealing with the evidence is a mess. We cannot tell what you're relying on. Um, Now, recent decisions have got much better and much clearer, so these things might be moving in the right direction. And the judges have recently had, uh, they had at the end of uh, 2019, a judicial retreat where they apparently composed internal guidelines on uh, case management and judgment writing that were meant to bring everyone more onto the same page. But one of the things the Open Society Justice Initiative report kind of flagged is that where there's confusion about these issues, a judge who's come from a national tradition will revert to their national tradition if the international setting isn't clear enough. And this is long known about. I mean, one of the jokes uh, about the um, Tokyo Tribunal was that 
Uh, the Australian judge who chaired it in cases of doubt would apply the Queensland bar rules of evidence, uh, which were obviously terribly familiar to the defendants at Tokyo and indeed the American prosecutors. Um, but, you know, so those sorts of things need to, be, uh, need to be sorted out. What about the prosecutorial strategies? You've told us a bit about the judges and how they approach the evidence and, and, right. and judgment writing. How do we about prosecutorial strategies, has there been a consistent theme here or is there a real problem in that well, as there's, well? There's been a pivot um, and one way of examining it would be the Kenya cases and mm-hmm. the Kenya case collapses because those started under the first prosecutor, uh, uh, Luis Moreno Acampo, who, look, you, you probably needed a first prosecutor who was focused on getting cases up and getting high-profile cases up to get momentum for the court. But he seems to have been a big picture prosecutor rather than, how to put it, a kind of gifted courtroom lawyer who is in there managing the nitty gritty. Mm. And so the, the risk is if you've got that disjunct, that you put up cases for the message they send and maybe without having had everything nailed down. Um, so the Kenya cases, I've already said, collapsed. Uh, and the second prosecutor, uh, Fatu Bensuda, issued recently kind of the executive summary of a report into um, why they collapsed and what the learnings should be. And a lot of those uh, said, well, you need to switch from this idea of Acampo's short and focused investigations to more open-ended holistic investigations, make sure you've got the the evidence right. You need a more cautious strategy to go for mid-tier leaders first and build up towards the big guys rather than starting at the top. And her response to this sort of investigation was, oh, well, we're already doing all of that. Now, on the one hand, that's true. Her strategy documents have been moving in this way for a while. But on the other hand, it looks a bit like burying all the problems to date in the Ocampo period and kind of just sealing that over. And if the strategies have been so good throughout her tenure, well, the only thing they've got to show for it is the conviction in uh, Intaganda, which is essentially a mid-level warlord case. And also on her watch, she's opened these controversial investigations into Afghanistan and seeking a jurisdiction ruling over Palestine. And those will only sort of come to fruition on the third prosecutor's watch. So in a sense, things are moving in the right direction, but there isn't a lot to show for it yet. And if Ben Suda's kind of a transitional prosecutor, well, you know, in a sense, she's buried the problems of the past with the first prosecutor and maybe made a couple of hospital passes to the third prosecutor in terms of difficult balls he or she is going to have to pick up and run with. Now, there's been, just to wrap up on these problems, Douglas, there's been some issues with, I don't want to say behaviour, but perhaps with squabbling, as you've said, even amongst the judges themselves and and issues in relation to how judges relate to each other and to perhaps the outside world in many respects. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, Well, 2019, the first half of 2019 was an extraordinary year. Uh, In January, you saw this um, very public spat between Judge uh, Carranza, Judge Hofmansky and Judge uh, Eboe Osuji over who should preside in the appeal in um, Prosecutor and Gbagbo, which is uh, uh, one of the ones where uh, there was sort of scathing, um, no, sorry, where there were questions about qualities of of fact-finding. But um, Carranza essentially uh, said, I think it should be my turn. And Hofmansky, as president of the Appeals Division, said, oh, well, the issues here have been dealt with in the past by Judge uh, Aboe Asuji, so we'll appoint him. Now, there'd be nothing 
extraordinary about these conversations going on behind closed doors. But they started issuing public briefing notes against each other that were appearing on the court's website. And it got to the point where Carranza was you know, publishing sort of counter replies saying it's been an abusive process and power for Hofmansky and Boyasuji to make these statements about me. Now, there are signs they all kind of made up because they signed on to the same appeals decision in the Al-Bashir case, but that was pretty extraordinary airing of dirty laundry. But worse came in March, April, when uh, Judge Azaki, uh, the Japanese national judge, proposed that um, she would simultaneously serve as a part-time judge of the court. She'd applied to go part-time, which she was allowed to do. Uh, but while part-time as a judge would take up a position as Japan's ambassador to Estonia, now, as lawyers, we generally think that, you know, um, the judicial office and executive offices, like being an ambassador, should be held separately. That would be seen as some sort of conflation of conflict of interest between different um, arms of government power. So the, the more extraordinary thing was her request was approved by a majority vote of her fellow judges as disclosing no conflict of interest. And then um, she resigned the ambassadorship when the story was broken in academic blogs and then the mainstream media. Uh, so we've had some pretty extraordinary behaviour at the top and six judges, including the current president, who resigns at the end of this year, uh, have been litigating their salary um, before the International Labour Organisation, claiming that uh, 200,000 euros tax-free is too low for their duties and for living in The Hague. And I'd note that that would be equivalent to about a $550,000 Australian salary taxed, uh, which is about what you pay a judge of the High Court of Australia. So apparently that's not the right salary level for these people. Oh dear. Well, Douglas, we're going to turn to the solutions. And in particular, we really want to hear what you think about how this might all be resolved. But let's kick two things into touch first. And that is the question of funding. Is this all because the court doesn't have enough money? And the second one is, is it all because the court picks problems with non-parties. So what, what about the funding? Is, is the court adequately funded? Uh, well, look, at the moment, it's got an annual budget of over 150 million euros. As we've said at the beginning, it's spent 1.5 billion in its lifetime and it has over 900 employees. Um, so its funding is definitely comparable to the better performing criminal tribunal for Yugoslavia at the peak of its operation. Um, so the, the question might then be, well, is that a fair comparison? The ICC has a bigger remit. Uh, it doesn't have the kind of clear political backing that the ICTY had. And for most of its life, the ICTY was operating in a post-conflict environment where other actors were bringing diplomatic pressure, particularly onto Serbia and Croatia, to surrender people to the court. So, you know, is, is it fair to expect the same return for investment? And the bottom line is, well, the court's got to work out what it can do within that envelope. Because if it can only succeed in a post-conflict environment with unambiguous political support uh, as sort of additional props or a limited territorial remit, then it's not designed to succeed. It doesn't have any of those characteristics and it's not likely to. Um, the other issue perhaps for the court is, uh, that's been widely noted, that um, its employment profile is skewed much more towards the administrative side than uh, frontline investigation. Now, partly that may be a tail wagging the dog issue. The more active cases you've got running, the more translators you need and the more court support staff, uh, and that's going to divert resources in a particular way. But at the end of the day, um, the court isn't going to get any more money 
and needs to work out what it can do within the resources it's got. In terms of um, picking fights with uh, third parties, I think, look, honestly, I think in retrospect, a potential design flaw in the court is that it, it more or less is destined to pick fights with non-parties because it was given ordinary territorial jurisdiction. Uh, and as lawyers, we're both familiar with the idea that territorial jurisdiction means if a foreign national, even if they're a foreign government official, commits a crime on your territory, they can potentially be put into the dock subject to questions of state immunity. And if a crime is commenced outside your territory but completed within it, such as you know, drug smuggling offences, um, then you can potentially assert jurisdiction over the foreign nationals involved if you can lay your hands on them. And the court has applied those principles in a perfectly ordinary way and said, well, we've got jurisdiction in Afghanistan, and to the extent that crimes have been committed by uh, the nationals of non-state parties, such as members of the CIA, we have jurisdiction over that. It's said to the extent that um, there are potentially crimes involved in the deportation of Rohingya from uh, Myanmar into Bangladesh, that crime is completed on the territory of a state party, Bangladesh, so we can assert jurisdiction over the whole a uh, whole course of conduct. Uh, the state of Palestine is now a member of the court and um, the jurisdiction hearing is underway because the frontiers of Palestine might be considered somewhat uncertain. But in the event that there's a positive jurisdictional ruling, then it won't matter that Israeli nationals are not um, nationals of a state party to the court if offences have been committed on the territory of Palestine, they fall within the court's jurisdiction. So in a whole series of situations, the court is inevitably winding up picking fights with parties it has no jurisdiction over. And because they're not parties, they have no legal obligation to cooperate with the court and indeed are entitled to go out of their way to undermine the court. Like that, that is not an unlawful activity. It's certainly obstructing the court. It doesn't seem wildly consistent with perhaps the idea of the rule of law at an international level. But at the end of the day, the court's a treaty body. It's empowered by state consent. All right. Then to come to the final big issue, Douglas, and to ask the question that Lennon asked, what is to be done? <laughs> well, look, it's... I don't think it's a huge exaggeration to say that um, from the outset, there's been something of a struggle underway for the soul of the court. Like, what, what is it actually there to do? And I call this the competing universalist and sort of pragmatic visions. So a big force behind the court from the outset has been a certain, uh, have been civil society movements and certainly uh, some very forward-leaning um, European states in particular who are comfortable with supranational courts like the European Court of Human Rights. And that view says the point of the court is the global fight against impunity. It's got to reach as far as it can. It's got to do as much as it can. And on that basis, you want to push aggressively forward. You want to take these forward-leaning interpretations of the extent of territorial jurisdiction. But for me, that sets you up for being overstretched. And an overstretched court is going to under-deliver. So the more pragmatic view is to say, look, it's an international organisation like any other. It's based in member state consent. Uh, and it's got to kind of cut its cloth and pick its fights based on those limitations. Now, um, to some extent, then, we have seen, I think, a move towards more pragmatism. As we've said, the OTP has refined its strategy documents and said, 
longer investigations, target the mid-level first, also a new strategy for discontinuing cases, um, which has never been done before. Uh, and at the moment, the Assembly of State Parties is conducting an independent expert review. Um, all of those would help, as would proper judicial induction and training for the new judges of the court, because we've talked about the limitations of their background. But essentially, my view is the court needs more modesty. What it needs is an internal ethic with, of modesty as to how much it can achieve, modesty amongst uh, the senior office holders as to the scope of their role and how responsibilities should be divided, and modesty in terms of strict application of the statute and to avoid um, judicial overreach. And at the moment, I think there's an aggressive world of power politics out there. The tide has gone out from the early 90s in terms of the universalist aspirations of, I guess, much of the international community. So unless it can come to a more modest understanding of its role, it is just going to become bogged down in a series of judicial quagmires where it's hard to make progress, particularly uh, the CIA in Afghanistan, Rohingya deportation into Bangladesh and the Israel-Palestine to dispute. Uh, I guess the argument against me would be, sure, you're saying all of these things need to change if the court's going to survive in practice, um, but I suppose a number would say if it's going to survive as an ideal, those are exactly the cases it needs to take on. And I think that's where we are at the moment. So a final question, Douglas, to wrap it all up, given all of these challenges with structure, with decision-making, with all sorts of components of how courts operate, with the nature of the different bodies that form the court with this obviously clear challenge that the Assembly of States Parties is now presenting to the court's future. Um, does it have a future? Will it respond? Will it evolve? I think the big challenge to its future is not its survival. It's pretty hard to come up with international institutions that have been disbanded other than the League of Nations and the International Tin Council. Um, so it's likely to survive in some form. The bigger problem, I think, for it uh, would be if it can't um, show more progress in things like securing a uh, greater number of clearly fair, successful um, convictions, that uh, state parties might start turning their support elsewhere. Like, you know, the court lives or dies by the support it receives from its state parties. And if there's a decisive turn towards regional or transitional justice mechanisms uh, and giving the court the cold shoulder, I think that's the real risk, that it becomes seen as uh, less relevant or even perhaps uh, sidelined. A fascinating point to end on. Douglas, thank you once again for coming in today and talking to us about the National Criminal Court, a really fascinating study and one that's very important for us, of course, and Australia is a party to the Rome Statute and this has implications for us clearly. Well thank you all for joining us today for this fascinating discussion and for your audience interest today. This was the first of our Navigating Uncertainty podcasts. Please join us again when we explore in the next podcast the challenges of understanding a small war in a distant time, space and culture through a deep dive into the Santal Rebellion of 1855. Thank you.